We're going to focus our thoughts this morning on the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, Cindy prayed this morning at the invocation that your Holy Spirit would come. And so we thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence among us. I ask, O Holy Spirit, that the very breath of life from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon your church, this wonderful community called Holy Trinity. I ask, Lord, that you would touch them in deep and profound ways so that their mind would not be filled with anxiety but be filled with your peace that their heart would not be distracted by all the sizzle around the world, but that the heart would beat as one with you. And that as we leave the worship service today after the Eucharist, Lord, that we would recognize that you have anointed our hands and our feet, that wherever we go, you're there. And you're preparing us, Father, to be the salt and the light and a witness throughout the whole world. And so, Holy Spirit, have them only remember what you want them to remember. And have them forget everything else. For your honor and your glory. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, I mentioned to you earlier that Bobby and I um, have really a wonderful relationship, and I think one of the reasons is there's some things we have very similar and some things that are very different. One of the things we have different is the gift of cooking versus my particular gift, the gift of eating. And one of the things that I begin to realize in, in our marriage together is that when Bobby makes a special meal, that's perfectly prepared and deliciously produced, it is my responsibility not to consume it, but to savor it. To really enjoy every bit and parcel of the length of time it took and how wonderfully it was prepared. I sometimes think in America, in our American way, we have this tendency to just want to consume things. It's almost like when we go to vacation, we're only there to snap a, a shot, do a selfie, and then we're off to the next destination. But God never works that way. In fact, the church knew that early on, and that's why they established the church calendar. Because the tendency in the American church so many times is that you just race from one major event to another, and it's not always sacred events, sometimes it's secular events, and so Easter comes upon us just like that. And then we can't wait for the next holy holiday, which is usually Mother's Day, <laughs> and then Memorial Day, and then Father's Day, and we wait to another event called Christmas. But the early church thought the best way to create spiritual formation was not only give the seasons of the church here in color, but for us as Christians, as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ to savor every moment 
And so in preparation of Easter, we had Lent to prepare our hearts for the significance of Holy Week. And then we'd spend time with the journey with Jesus toward Jerusalem, understanding what it meant to wash the feet of the disciples, to experience really what John 13 through 17 is all about, to understand the pain and the heartache and the humiliation that was evolved in the cross of Jesus on Good Friday, the emptiness of Saturday for the disciples and followers, so that when Sunday comes and that Christ is raised, we can truly celebrate that resurrection. And then the church had in their incredible wisdom to have six weeks, what they call Eastertide, so that we would savor the moment as followers of Jesus Christ to understand what it means to be a resurrection-shaped community. What it means for us, even in 2015, how to live our lives distinctly different based not on the death of Christ, but based on the resurrected Christ. And it culminates in this wonderful celebration that we had last week called Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, of which today then it puts kind of a, a ribbon and ties it in a beautiful bow when you call Trinity Sunday, which lays out the whole season that's called ordinary, which means green, it means life, it means how do you live as a community of God that is shaped by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but is also shaped by the Holy Spirit? What kind of community is created when they are marked by those critical events? And you and I know how important critical events are. We've been shaped just secularly by 9-11, haven't we? It's affected us in terms of when we go to the airport, the length of time we have to have, or other significant events. I was significantly changed when two of my heroes, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, were assassinated in 1968. I was 13 at the time. And to this day, I realize how leadership can be abused by a single bullet in a way of life. For those who are wondering, yes, I'm 60 now, in case you want to add all those things up. <laughs> so the, the question that we have before us today is, as we look at the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, we begin to realize that what Luke, Dr. Luke was trying to share as he was giving a description of the early church, he is defining for us that several key points in the book of Acts what does a resurrection-shaped community that is shaped by the Holy Spirit act like? The professor in me makes it like, how do you grow healthy churches? It's a question, basically, that's been asked all through the centuries in the church. The early church had to ask that question, what makes a resurrection-shaped community? And they had to define it because people were giving different responses. And the Nicene Creed, which we'll do later on, would help us understand a healthy church is about orthodoxy. That you have to know something about Jesus, the triune God. You have to know something about his death and burial and resurrection. You find later on, and you can go through all the centuries, churches after churches, we're beginning to ask the question, what makes us healthy? How are we shaped? 
A classic example would be happened with Bonhoeffer and World War II and Karl Barth when they had to make a decision because they had all the churches in Germany aligning themselves with Adolf Hitler and defending their nationalism of the country. And Barth and Bonhoeffer and other leaders in their confessional church had what's called a Barman Declaration that had to communicate to the people of God in Germany and all through Europe what is true health. How does a community of God don't do it the American way, they do it God's way? How do they begin to have some signposts that are distinctive, that people, when they see you and me, they see a community that is shaped by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that is shaped by the Holy Spirit in their life? Because it is my particular conviction what the church, what, what society wants us to be is actually the church. And so many times the church is trying to be exactly what society is. That we are the light and we are the salt and we are a distinctive flavor in this world around us so that people can see what the kingdom of God is based on the cross and the towel, not on the sword and the shield of the kingdoms of this world. And that's why I find it fascinating as you look at the book of Acts, you begin to realize that Luke stops strategically at certain points to give us kind of an assessment of a community shaped by the Holy Spirit and the resurrection of Jesus. Let me read it for you. It's found in Acts chapter 4. And I'm going to start with verse 31. It says, And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which translated the son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. There are three marks that I see in this particular passage of a community that's shaped by the resurrection of Jesus and shaped by the Holy Spirit. The first one, if you have your Bible, is the expression when it says in verse 32, now the multitude of those who believe were of one what? Heart and one soul. That's significant because the idea in the original language is really they had one breath. It was almost like this community that was shaped by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and shaped by the Holy Spirit had the ability to inhale and exhale together. Or if you want to use another metaphor, it'd be like this beautiful orchestra and you had such diversity of gifts and talents and abilities that were there, but they had the ability to make beautiful music together because they were a one, is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, the unity of the faith. 
And here's the first principle, the, the first characteristic that you see in a church that's shaped by the Holy Spirit is that they have unity in the midst of diversity. The New Testament church that was shaped by the Holy Spirit had unity, and the false standard often the modern church uses is not unity, but uniformity. Do you know the difference? You can go in San Diego where I live, you go to Camp Pendleton, and you see everybody dressed the same way, and that's what we call uniformity. And there are some churches that have the same language that they use one with another, and and they have code words many times they use that are often not connected with the community or neighborhoods they have. And what they have is uniformity, but they don't have unity. Or what you have a certain philosophy that often just simply reflects the senior pastor at the pulpit. Like two of the largest churches in San Diego, one is known as the Young and Hip Church, and the other one is known as the Corporate Church. And so you have the Young and Hip go to this church, and you have the Corporate Church go or the corporate folks go to the other church. That's uniformity. But the characteristic that we begin to see here in the fourth chapter of Acts is that the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. You see, because uniformity creates psychologically some things for us. When you begin to have uniformity, you begin to have insiders and outsiders. Have you noticed that? You can actually, in uniformity, tell who doesn't belong and who really does belong. You can actually create a sense of pride and fear because uniformity has some standards of acquiring power and protecting power. But that's not the way of Jesus Christ or his followers. What he desired is that we would have unity, not uniformity. So you say, Tony, how do you, how do you achieve unity in a church? It's a good question, isn't it? And I don't have all the complete answers, but I do know the very first ingredient that's necessary for a community that's shaped by the Holy Spirit that wants to reveal what God desires for the church to be, that the first ingredient for unity is always humility. Always. You can never have unity in the midst of pride. One of my mentors, as well as Todd mentor, was Dallas Willard. To this day, every day on May 8th, I think about his death. He was the most influential person in my life. He was an individual that walked more consistently than I knew in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven than anyone else I've met or spent a long time with. And one of the things that Dallas would teach us about humility, and he would always say, Tony, this is guaranteed. If you practice this for 30 days, you will have humility. And I love a challenge. <laughs> so can I share the challenge with you? Dallas said the first thing that you need to do is refrain from pretending. Refrain from pretending to be something you're not. We spend most of the time in society pretending we're something we're not. We even use language that we're branding ourselves. We create this dialogue within a church that we're something that we're really not. We're so worried about titles and salaries and descriptions that are there because we're in this constant edge in the secular world of jockeying for position in society. That for you and I, if we're quite honest, is very tiring. 
And so we're spending time trying to win constantly, over and over, trying to acquire more power, protect our power. And Dallas would say is refrain from pretending to be something that you're not. Be that unique characteristic that God has called you. I have a friend who's a certified Gallup trainer on the Strength Finders 2.0. Has anybody ever taken that? And he says if you've taken the Strength Finder, if you have this top five character, characteristics, um, not in the order, but you just have this top five, you're one in 27,000 people. And he says if you have the same order of these strengths in the exact order that they are, you're one in 33 million according to the entire Gallup survey. Now just add that factor to how unique you are and where you were born, the experience you had before you came to know Christ, the situations you developed, the heartaches, the pain, the joys, the mountaintop experience, as well as the walking through the valley of the shadow of death, all those kind of experiences is that you are such a unique individual in God's great economy, and he adores you and loves you. You're part of that diversity that he has, and he wants you to be who you are. And so refrain from pretending. Dallas said the second thing you have to do is refrain from pushing your own agenda. That is, take the time to spend time not pushing your agenda. Just kind of let it be. In fact, he was talking in the latter part of life, he wanted to have a development, a process of of learning a certain discipline, and he had one of his students in his doctoral program. He was a professor of philosophy for many years at, at USC, probably over 40. And, and then he taught at Fuller and other places, and he began to, as he talked about this whole process, he, he says one of the students kept arguing with him and kind of was rude. And all the other students knew exactly, knew exactly that Dallas could rip him up and tear him down theologically, philosophically, and all this, and Dallas was just taking it all in. At the end of the tirade of this young doctoral student, Dallas says, well, I think we need to take a break. And of course, the students came to him and they said, Dr. Willard, why'd you do that? You could have ate him up. And he told the students, I'm practicing the discipline of not having the last word. Isn't that good? So refrain from pretending and refrain from pushing your agenda and refrain from having a favorable position in society. Don't feel the need to be in the front row, the best seats, those type of things. Let, let people call you up. Let people relate to you in those particular ways. He says, Tony, if you get that, if you, if you do that for 30 days, you're going to learn humility. And if our church whether it's Holy Trinity or Restoration Abbey or the churches for the sake of others or the great community of gods out there, one of the things that we're missing in this church and why it's not drastically different is that we have a whole lot of uniformity but very little unity. And what the first mark is is they're of one heart and one soul. Their heart beats together and they have unity. But that's not the only thing I see in this text. Because it says, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold 
and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. The second mark of a resurrected shaped community is generosity in the midst of scarcity. The false standard that's often used in churches is either advocating communism, we just give everything we have away, and the truth is, you know that that system is everyone becomes poor except the, the elite. <laughs> or we have forced tithing, that you feel this gigantic guilt trip to give 10% or whatever the case may be in an organization. I know churches that have their pastoral staff, they actually check, not in our, our communities, but they actually check whether the associate pastors are giving 10% from their salary as given back to the church. That's not what the early church was all about. You see, a resurrected, shaped community manifests naturally generosity in the midst of scarcity. So you say, Tony, well, how do we get that? Well, the first ingredient is humility to have unity. You also have to have a first ingredient from generosity, and that's the word gratitude. It's only with people with gratitude that are generous. Have you noticed that? That people are grateful. And how do you get gratitude? You begin to get to know each other in the story. Now, I wish I would have the opportunity to know every one of you because your narratives, your stories must be incredible. You come from different places and others and here we are together as a community of God, chosen and a sovereignty to be here at this time. And there's so many things going on in your life, but do we spend the time really to get to know one another? Is the fellowship time that we have afterwards or during the week, is it really an expression of gratitude for each other, of giving? I know at my church, Restoration Abbey, we have four boys that play for the Vista High School baseball team. And they're Christians, and we really believe in the intergenerational connection. And you know what they're called at Vista High School? I didn't know. They're called the God Squad. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Here are these adolescents, juniors and seniors, and, and they're standing up for Jesus, and they're just known as the God Squad. And they're good baseball players, too. And you begin to see, I would never have known that story until I began to spend some time. Or when the Chaldean Christians were being killed or the people in Egypt were being killed. We had a lady named Nadia who grieved more deeply than everybody else because that was her hometown, her community. And I needed to know her story because I was so grateful for Nadia. A quiet lady in the back, but she has a story. I just wrote some things down here, I'm, let me quote W.A. Ward, feeling gratitude and not expressing it is like wrapping up a present and not giving it. Look around you and who are the stories you don't know? The people that you haven't communicated with? Have you really expressed gratitude to them? Share with them how they made a difference in your life. Do something thoughtful for them. The power of small means a lot. Give them a long hug. Kiss on the cheek if it's appropriate. Make when you do the peace really count for one another. Give them the full attention of what you're talking about. Throw away the cell phones, wherever mine is someplace here, during that time of conversation so you're not double-tasking, you're multitasking, you're focusing on one. 
Compliment them on something you admire by them. Spend time with someone not your age. It doesn't look like you. Or even when you go to a restaurant, give a larger tip. Or if they have a bowl that's there for their tips, put a little note just saying, thank you very much, I appreciate it. Write a handwritten note because emails are, just don't work as effective anymore. How much you appreciate them. The whole point that I'm trying to make is that the New Testament community that has been shaped by the resurrection of Jesus and shaped by the Holy Spirit was a grateful community. And because they were a grateful community, they exhibited generosity in the midst of scarcity in their life. And so this was all volunteer. They gave of what they had to assist those who, that had not. The third mark of a, a resurrection-shaped community is courage in the midst of adversity. I read, and it's not normally in the paragraph, in the context, verse 31, it says, when they had prayed. The, the context was they were praying for boldness because Peter and John were actually being persecuted for their faith by the religious leaders of that day. And they were commanded not to speak the gospel, not to talk about Jesus. And so the first thing what Peter and John did after they were released is they went to the church and they were told not to speak the gospel. And the first thing the community did to pray for them is give them boldness so they would speak for the gospel. They were socially bold. They were outspoken. They were, had a freedom of speech. There was frankness and candor in what they had. They knew they had to communicate the message. And if you tie in exactly what they're saying, it wasn't just verbal demonstration. It was actually hands and feet demonstration. And so the third mark that I begin to see of a community shaped by the Holy Spirit is courage in the midst of adversity. And the Bible says, and with great power, dunamis, dynamite, energy, force, great ability and strength, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection, and great grace was upon them all. Courage is not an absence of fear, but a greater commitment than the fear. Courage happens when you begin to understand the grace and mercy of God that you have. You know what the false standard of that is? Is a religious spirit. A religious spirit destroys courage by the Holy Spirit. You know how you know if someone has a religious spirit? Their reputation building as opposed to incarnational living. They're always judging other people. They're always manifesting things that they're, they're not fully committed to their local community. They don't trust others. They don't respond well even to loving criticism. They're resistant to things they don't fully understand. They have all the IQ, but they lack a lot of the I do. You know people like that? Let's not mention names, okay? How do you get that, though? How do you get courage in the midst of adversity? Well, the answer is you get courage in the midst of adversity by discipline, by arranging your life in such a way that you're experiencing the deep joy and contentment that God can provide for you. Remember the story of uh, Sully and Airbus that happened in LaGuardia Airport? And he became a hero because he was spending time um, with the plane. 
They were traveling from LaGuardia Airport to Charlotte. And from Charlotte, they were actually supposed to be going to SeaCat in Seattle. And during that period of time, in the notes there, was US Airways Flight 1549, Airbus uh, 1549, 150 passengers brought by crew members. And during that time, as they were going up in the plane, they began to see as they were um, taking off, about 700 uh, feet up, they began to see the right flock of birds. They thought they were going to miss the birds, but at 2,800 feet, they hit the birds. And they hit them very hard, so much so that the Airbus, the windows in front of Sully and his co-pilot, they were unable to see. It was darkened by the birds. The passengers that were there, all they could hear was the thump sound. And then they would begin to look outside of the plane. So you imagine this thing like fly plane, but I never fly again. They're looking outside and you see the planes coming out of the engine. Immediately, Sully goes back to the Hawaii airport and said, we hit birds, we need to land back to the Hawaii airport. The controller says, runway 13 is open. Ten seconds later, Sully goes back to them and says, we cannot land there. And he thinks about the small airport that's in the New Jersey side. They call that and they get clearance of emergency landing in runway one. Ten seconds later, so Sully says, we're not going to He has 180 seconds to make 57 different decisions during that time. That would either save the life or they would lose the life. And in that course of that 180 seconds, he makes a decision that he's going to land in the Hudson River. And he maneuvers his plane in such a way that the plane would land in the way the currents were flowing, not against the currents that would cause more damage upon the plane. And he's strategically thinking through this entire process that he needs to land close to some other boats so the boat is trying to rescue the passengers earlier. People said around that city as they were looking at George Washington Bridge that the plane, the Airbus, was only about 700 feet above George Washington Bridge. Can you imagine you had to drop your ride there and see him? He's about ready to land. He's about 15 seconds before he lands up on the plane of the Hudson River. He says to the passengers, brace for landing. And the stewards and the stewardesses, you wouldn't believe that they began doing all the things you don't pay attention to. You know, what we need to do with this and how you bend down. And you know how you and I are here all the time, you hardly pay attention to it. I bet they're taking notes now. <laughs> I was just this. And he hits the Hudson River. He hits the Hudson River and within seconds he gets out of his pilot seat, he goes and he travels twice back and forth with the Airbus to make sure that all the passengers are done. As he leaves there, he and another passenger, much younger man, were the last two people to meet. Because he landed his plane so close to other boats, the first rescue boat was only four minutes away. And as a result of what he did, 100 people were injured five seriously but no one passed. We call him here. Some would say he was even lucky. But it wasn't lucky. Sully had uh, 19,663 flight hours. Sully was a certified safety expert in the glider pilot. Even though he never had 
faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you want to be able to live the light and the salt of the word, you start now. You start doing the right thing, being faithful at the right time, spending time in the disciplines that are necessary for your well-being. You don't wait until we're flabby in our faith and adversity issue. Because so many people do that. You know what happens? They take off from their faith. They're gone. A resurrected shaped community has three factors. The sheep by the Holy Spirit will have unity in the midst of adversity. They'll have generosity in the midst. And they'll also have courage in the midst. Today's the last day in May. It's year 2015. When you leave these doors and spend time, are you going to be distinctly different than you were when you reentered? We have Cindy about the presence of the Spirit. God is so much crazy. 